All right, now that you are familiar with the passage, I want to offer just a few notes to clarify a few things going on here. And by the way, before I start, how are you doing making application to the scripture and following up on that? Do you remember from the last few weeks anything that you've committed to? Are you being just informed or are you, are you being transformed? I hope that you are aiming for change, real change. And if not, then what are we even doing this for, right? So I challenge you at, to answer at the end of your time together reflecting on this. What is one thing, just one thing I can do to be obedient to the Lord in this? And then maybe follow that up with who can I tell and put some accountability in your life. Ask others to help you in that. I think there'd be uh, plenty of people who would be happy to help follow up on those things. Lord, change us is my prayer. So a couple of notes here. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit is where we start in Luke chapter 4. Jesus was teaching in a way, so you know, that was different from typical rabbis who would use more of an anthological form, which would be where they would refer to, to make an argument or present a truth, they would refer to previous rabbis and previous traditions, and they'd kind of build an argument based on the precedent of those other people, kind of like the way that legal decisions are made in a court. So so-and-so has said this in the past, and so-and-so has said this, and so here's the truth. But Jesus was making truth claims directly on his own accord without any kind of backup. So for example, in the last chapter four, um, or earlier in chapter four, that's a way that um, it, Jesus is saying, here's, here's the passage in Isaiah, and here's how it should be interpreted based on because I said so. <laughs> and not only is Jesus making these kind of self-supported claims, but he's also, of course, then backing them up with these miracles or proof. And so it's no surprise that his fame is spreading quickly. Uh, there's lots of people, of course, that make maybe bizarre, authoritative, seemingly authoritative statements or claims, but it's not backed up necessarily with power like it was for Jesus. Uh, just another quick note here in this section is that um, kind of an ancient superstition was that if you knew the true name of someone, you would then have power over them. Kind of like the uh, the Rumpelstiltskin story, right? If you're familiar with that, if you knew his knew his actual name, then you have power over him. And I think that's maybe why the demon here and elsewhere, when demons encounter Jesus, they're like, "Hey, I know who you are." And here he says, "You're the Holy One of God," right? As if to say, if I if he can if he can determine that, then he would have some sort of power over Jesus, which of course he proves not to have. Um, moving along, when Jesus is preaching uh, in the synagogues around in the area of Capernaum, it says in verse 43 that he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And I would just remind you, as we've talked about before, that here in Jesus' life, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God is before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so those things that are so true to what the good news is to us, um, is not even the exact good news that Jesus is preaching here. It's about the kingdom of God, and um, we'll talk more about the kingdom of God, which Luke kind of develops a little bit later. In that section later on in chapter 5, when Jesus cleanses the leper, uh, leprosy, as you probably know, it was could in biblical times 
um, stand for a number of different kind of skin diseases. Usually you might see visible sores, so it's apparent to the eye that somebody had leprosy. I'll read from Leviticus 13, just the life of a leprous person. It says this, Leviticus 13:45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, in Old Testament law, that wasn't meant to be mean to those people with leprosy, but it was meant to protect the rest of the Israelite community from disease. Um, however, it was kind of seen as, hey, you're being removed out of God's presence where it dwelt in the Israelite camp or in the, in the temple. So it was disgraceful. Um, but it was also just a way of protection for the people. So in the day, even in Jesus' day, if you saw a leper walking around in your area, then what would your expected reaction be to that, but that you would stay away? You certainly wouldn't touch that person. You'd kind of walk around. Why? Because it was thought that leprosy was contagious. People would treat them maybe similarly to how when AIDS was first uh, becoming uh, more, we were more aware of it, maybe 20 years ago or something, there was um, this idea that it was, it was more easily transferable than it actually is. Um, and in actual, like, modern leprosy or Hansen's disease, it's actually not quite as contagious as they thought back in the day. You have to be exposed to it for a long time. Um, but at the very least, they, they thought it could be transferred that way. And so you would stay away from that person. If you happen to touch that person, Lord forbid, you would be considered unclean for a time until they could verify that you hadn't contracted leprosy. So no one touches a leper. But when Jesus sees a leper, what is his reaction to him? Touch. Jesus healed a lot of people over time without touching them, but this one was important that he would touch him. And if you think about it, this man, presumably, it said he was, he was full of leprosy. He probably had lived on the outskirts of town for a long time and almost certainly had not been touched by another human for a long time. And Jesus chooses to heal this man, not just by his word, but by touch. I love how the gospel writer Mark says it. It says that Jesus was moved with pity, so he stretched out his hand and he touched him. And then remarkably, instead of Jesus becoming unclean by touching the leper, Jesus' touch makes the leper clean. And then um, also in the Mosaic Law, in Leviticus chapter 14, we read about how if you have, if you believe that you no longer have leprosy, then there was a bunch of procedures and cleanings and shaving and offerings that, and sacrifices that you had to offer uh, so that you could be officially reinstated into society, which is why Jesus uh, says in 5 verse 14 to go ahead and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses required. So he's saying you can do that and then be reinstated into um, the, the society that you live in. Super cool story. That's, that's one of my favorite healing stories. Um, just after that, Jesus heals another person, the paralytic. Um, I used to not quite understand the interaction Jesus has with the religious people, what was going on there. I was just like, wait, what, what, what's the, the logic here? But I think it's basically this. Jesus tells the paralytic after he demonstrates faith. He says, 
paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, well, yeah, right. Only God can forgive sins. You can't do that. And Jesus is kind of saying, yeah, I understand it's easy to say your sins are forgiven and that you can't really prove whether that's happened or not. I can't, but it might be a little harder, you'd think, to say be healed because we would know we'd have proof that that carried authority with it or not. So if I heal this man physically, you'll believe that maybe I also have the power to forgive sins and that that would be um, authoritative also. So he tells the paralytic, be healed, right? So Jesus' word is effective and it accomplishes what he says, proven by the physical healing. So presumably then he can forgive sins also by speaking that word. I think that's kind of some of maybe a summary of what the interaction going on there is like. And then lastly, Jesus, um, his calling to Levi, as most of you know, tax collectors in the day uh, were seen as traitors to um, the, the Jewish people uh, because they were Jewish themselves, but they were working for the Roman government, collecting taxes for them. And oftentimes they collected more than they were owed. So they're just kind of the scoundrel, the worst of sinners in some ways that people would see them. And Jesus interacts with Levi and his buddies in two ways that I think we sometimes may shy away from this kind of response. You'll probably shy away from one or the others of these. Um, first of all, it says in verse 29, he reclined at table with Levi and all these so-called sinners. To recline at table in the day, especially with someone it, it symbolized a connection with, or an, almost an acceptance of. Jesus, in going to this feast and being with and reclining at table with these people, did um, or it, it caused him to be at, at risk of seeming like he was endorsing their cheating lifestyle. And Jesus even, it seems like, approached Levi, not vice versa here. So Jesus kind of initiated that context. So we see here that there's, there's nothing inherently wrong, if Jesus can do it, with being around sinners. Paul and others maybe later will go out to point out we should have no part in deeds of darkness with them, but we should be around them. We have to be around them. We are in this world. We're not to pull ourselves out of this world somehow. And it's so cool in this story. Wow. If one sinner invites you into their life to this feast, what an opportunity because now all of Levi's friends are hanging out around and um, you just have this open door to ministry and to presenting the gospel to all of these different people. So that's one thing that we um, shy away from maybe is, is being around these people who are seen as sinners and what that might make us look like if we are around them in their context, reclining at table with them. The other thing that we see that sometimes we shy away for, from, though, is he's calling them to repentance. And being there with them, he's not actually approving of and endorsing their lifestyle, but he's being with them with the purpose, it says in verse 32, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So maybe you're kind of one side or the other. You either don't want to be with them or you don't want to call them to repentance, but Jesus is doing both of those things. So quickly, just a couple overall themes and connections we can see here. First of all, in these passages, we see that Jesus' ministry program was counterintuitive. 
What is that program? Is his program to heal as many people as he can? Like it says in verse 17, it says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So if that's his power, shouldn't he just alleviate as much disease and demon possession as he possibly can and have that be his ministry? We see in ways in this passage that Jesus' priority was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Again, in verse 42 and 43, when a bunch of people are coming to him to be healed, he says, I've got to go to other towns to declare this message. There's even something more important than physically healing as many people in Capernaum as I can here, but there's a message to get out. And that message involved doing something that was healing an even greater sickness than the physical sickness, but his ability to forgive sins. And he is a priority in this message, the spiritual message of the forgiveness of sins, even over and above the, the temporary relief that he can provide for people. So it's a little counterintuitive there because he could do anything that he wanted to. He could heal whoever he wanted to as fast as he ever wanted to. Um, another interesting kind of counterintuitive thing to Jesus' program, if you will, that he's doing here is um, as his popularity is growing, well, let me just read about his popularity. And uh, he, he's teaching in all of the synagogues and he's causing a stir with all his miracles. And listen, I'll just shotgun a few different verses here about his popularity growing. Reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. The crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Chapter 5, now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law came, it says, from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And then with the paralytic, they couldn't find any way to bring him in because of the crowd of people around him. So his popularity is growing because of what he's saying and what he's doing. However, in these sections alone, twice, Jesus escapes to where? To desolate places. We see that again in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 42. All the people are bringing the sick people to Jesus because he can heal them. He's in Capernaum. And when it was day, it said he departed and went to a desolate place. And you see the people are like scrounging around. Wait, where is he when they're searching desperately for him because they're looking for healing? And again, in chapter 5, verse 12, after Jesus heals, or verse 15, after Jesus heals the leper, which is a huge deal, and it's going to make a huge stir. It says, now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray, which probably describes what he was doing earlier, escaping to a desolate place, to pray. So Jesus had unlimited opportunity for ministry to people. Yet he escaped, got alone, and prayed. And he will continue to do that through his ministry. I wonder if there might be something for us to learn from him in that. So Jesus um, has a counterintuitive ministry because he knows what's most important and he pursues those things. He pursues spiritual healing over physical relief. He pursues communion with God in, in prayer and solitude over ministry productivity, so to speak. Another kind of theme that we see in this section here is that faith is expressed in action, okay? Um, he says to Simon in chapter 5, put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. 
And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, here's the faith, at your word, I will let down the nets. A little bit of faith there. I don't think this is going to happen, but maybe, so I'm going to do this because you said so, and he demonstrated that in his actions. A little later, we see Peter and James and John and eventually Levi. It says they left everything to follow him because they had some faith in where he was going to take them. Uh, the leper believed Jesus was able to heal him, so he fell on his face and he begged him to see if Jesus wasn't able but was willing. He had this physical action of his faith. And then Luke 5, uh, chapter or verse 19, finding no way to bring the paralytic in, it says, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, they let his bed down through the tiles into the midst of before Jesus. So there's a lot of action going on here. And verse 20 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. So Jesus, it seems, is pleased to reveal himself to those who not only say that they believe something about him, but in a way their lives are saying, we're, we're banking on it. We're putting our actions where our faith is to show that it's real. And then a third kind of theme through this, I think the most touching side of what I read in these stories is that Jesus goes to the sick. You have an unclean leper, Jesus touches him. You have a, a, a sinful man, Peter, right? And the sinful man depart from me, but he doesn't depart from Peter, but he says, come, follow me, be with me. Then you have the worst of sinners, a tax collector, and Jesus reclines at table with him and with those sinners. So Jesus entered into our world, we're reading in the story. It's a world that is ridden with both spiritual and physical sicknesses. And he doesn't quarantine away from the sick, but he offered grace to them through touch through reclining at table, through presence with them. And yeah, that grace is going to come through repentance, but that, that knowledge of grace through faith is going to come as he is with them. So now let's take some time just to make some more observations and then hopefully applications of what we see here in this passage.